If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com 12-12. This is our number two for the World According to Zig podcast for this May 14th, 2017 weekly show that's one of the very few places where you can get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from the conservative perspective in this crazy upside-down world. As usual, hour number two is the hour where we do an interview with a newsmaker, which Mediaite then usually turns into a news and feature on Monday or Tuesday. And this week, we're incredibly happy to be joined by Bill Crystal, the editor-at-large of the Weekly Standard, also a CNN commentator, and one of my favorite uh, political commentators from a very, very long way back, although not to date him. Uh, Bill, uh, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for those kind words, except for the very, very long way back. <laughs> I think very long way back would have been enough, you know? <laughs> Fair enough. All right. But uh, good to be with you. Lots to talk about. And uh, I know that you and I have been pretty much in, in lockstep on Trump in general and in the reaction to the Comey firing. I'm curious, where do you stand on the issue of which is worse with regard to the interpretation of this week? That we now learn that perhaps the president is involved in a cover-up of his collusion uh, of Russian ties to his campaign, or number two, which is that he did this in such an incredibly incompetent way that he does not appear to be fit for office. Which would be worse? (laughs) I think the first is worse, just because colluding with a foreign country to, you know, to, to change an elect, help try to change an election outcome in the U.S. presidential election outcome would be pretty, uh, pretty ghastly. So I, I would prefer the second. But I agree that I think most Republicans here in Washington, I'll put it this way, kind of think the second is more true in the sense that it's probably not ultimately you know, criminal collusion by the president personally with Russia. There may be, you know, heads-ups and staffers who talk to Russians in ways that are inappropriate, maybe illegal, hard to know, actually. But the I think what's freaked people out here is the sense that he doesn't seem to have any understanding that when you're dealing with an FBI director in the midst of an actual FBI investigation, whatever the underlying facts, whatever the investigation finds, You've got to be very careful. I mean, there's just how many people does one know who got in trouble for obstruction of justice and for other things, lying to the FBI 
who we, even when the underlying crime was either trivial or sometimes non-existent even, you know. So the idea that he just recklessly fires Comey, puts out a statement later that night saying, well, but I was assured by the FBI director three times that I'm uh, not under investigation, which just opens up a huge number of questions about was it appropriate for Trump to ask him that? Did Comey say that? Comey will get asked that now, of course, and has a lot of, I think, a strong incentive to say, no, that's not correct. And I also don't know Comey, but I know people like Comey, and I think he's probably very, very careful in what he says and probably didn't say what Trump says. And then, of course, the interview later in the week with the things he said about, well, it turns out Russia was on his mind. It wasn't about Hillary Clinton. and um, The tapes, maybe, in the White House. I mean, I think people are a little just, whoa. I mean, this is 110 days in. It was chaos at the beginning. Everyone understands that happens. He's a temperamental guy. He tweets some silly things. Everyone understands that happens. I'm giving now the kind of slightly friendlier Trump view than, than mine. But, but this has really got people in Washington, at least, who've been around a while thinking, oh, my God. I mean, this is, he does not understand the kind of fire he's playing with now. Well, Bill, I, I, I'm, I'm glad you, you put it in those terms because, to me, I, I've been never Trump like you, but I've been Trump hopeful as well. Right. And, and, and to me, this week, we learned for sure – well, for absolute certitude, I'm curious if you agree, that he's not up to the job. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we still have to, you know, hope that the country does well, and therefore, I, and that's her on the new issue of the magazine, saying that, you know, we need to be grateful that H.R. McMaster is National Security Advisor and Mike Pompeo, CIA Director, and others, and they need, you know, I, I myself get asked by some people, younger people sometimes, should I go work in the administration? And I try to distinguish between jobs that would be excusing or rationalizing Trump's personal behavior or helping him politically or in communications, and jobs that would be rebuilding our military or, you know, defending the country or putting good justices on the Supreme Court. I think it's a pretty different. So I, I think we still have to hope for a, a non-disastrous administration, but and we may get that. It's a strong country, and there's some good people there. But, uh, yeah, he personally has done nothing to, seems not to have at all internalized the sense of what the office requires. In this extraordinary week, Bill, uh, you know, the word hypocrisy was thrown a lot uh, around a lot. And, and a lot of times it was accurately done so. Although I don't believe that the president's charge of hypocrisy, and I'm no fan of Democrats, no fan of Chuck Schumer. But I'm curious as to whether or not you've been struck by how conser- so-called conservatives, especially in the media, have suddenly lost what the definition of hypocrisy is as, as if because Chuck Schumer was not president and was not under investigation by, by Comey, somehow his criticisms of Comey make him incapable of criticizing Trump for the firing. What's your reaction to that? Because I, I am baffled by what happened to conservatives when it comes to the concept of consistency and hypocrisy. You know, it's a good point. It's as if, I mean, the word hypocrisy is being taken to mean a kind of, well, you've said some misleading things, too. But, of course, senators and Trump and everyone say misleading things, and we or change their minds or, or, or just for partisan and political reasons. Uh, saying that is, is a fair point to make in politics. But if you're the president and you fired Comey, you've got to defend firing Comey, and you've got to pick a replacement for Comey, and you've got to defend the things you said that justify your firing of Comey. And that's the core story, and the fact that a bunch of Democrats are opportunistic about it and, and have said different things at different times, and it doesn't prove anything any more than proving that John Cornyn was for a special counsel when Obama was president and is against one now that uh, Trump is president. It just proves that John Cornyn is a normal politician. It doesn't prove whether, it doesn't argue whether there should or shouldn't be a special counsel. Right. So I, I very much agree with you that the kind of, in, in, in some people, they know better than to really try to defend Trump, but they want to be on the kind of right side of this. They don't want to offend conservative 
supporters or readers or friends or people in the Trump administration or Trump himself. And so they're, they spend a heck of a lot of time showing the Democrats are politicians and hypocritical politicians sometimes and opportunistic politicians and say some silly things and do some silly things. And they don't kind of come to grips with the, the elephant in the room, which is that Donald Trump is president. Well, let's let's follow this line of reasoning for for a little bit because you're a charter member of the the I guess you call it the conservative media though I don't even know what the hell conservative media is anymore right. uh, in the era of Trump but uh, give me your assessment of of the so-called conservative media I'm talking about Fox Drudge Breitbart Rush Limbaugh people like that lockstep supporting Trump for things for which they would brutalize Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton, specifically what happened this week. What's your assessment of that? No, I think that's true. And I think one of the depressing things for me has been, I think there's a big difference. Some people voted for Trump, I didn't, and some people continue to support him much more than I do and or be more hopeful than I probably am now. But, you know, that's legitimate, and they can, they're making different trade-offs in terms of what uh, policies are, are, are happening and how risky it is to someone like Trump with his character and judgment in the Oval Office. And I, I understand that. But you've got to still, I, I respect the people who at least say, yeah, there's a trade-off, and I've just come to a slightly different place than, 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 than you have, Bill, in terms of where that, where that sits. That's totally legitimate. They, they may be right. But the people who just want to now pretend because they voted for Trump, because they wrote a few pieces saying, you know, it's not going to be that bad, because they attacked some of his critics, are now <coughs> have like gone down that path further to now rationalizing everything and pretending that they've never heard the case for free trade, they've never heard the case for a more moderate immigration policy, and they've never heard the case for American leadership in the world, and all these changes are totally reasonable that Trump is making, and they're well thought out, and I mean, it's really got, it's ridiculous, honestly, and depressing, I guess, to see it. I mean, Fox, parts of Fox have just gone down. Uh, just a ridiculous path. Tucker Carlson, I mean, is a friend of mine, you know, a friend of mine. He began at the Weekly Standard in Washington, worked there five, six years, and then stayed as a contributing editor. And, uh, you know, was an acquaintance of mine, I would say, but a close friend of many close friends of mine. Uh, and I have a very high opinion of him. One of the best young writers we hired, actually, I've got to say. I mean, he, one of these kids who, when he's 24, writes a beautiful piece, you know? Right. And uh, to see him on Fox, I don't really watch it much, but still uh, beating up some 20-year-old college liberal because he said he wrote something stupid. I mean, it's, it's really uh, ridiculous. And uh, I thought Charlie Sykes had a good piece in the New York Times uh, this weekend. You know, the fact that the left is wrong doesn't mean that Trump is right. And if conservatism is just like pointing out the silliness of the left and uh, neglecting uh, the huge fact that Donald Trump has co-opted some of the conservative movement and a lot of the Republican Party for now at least on behalf of uh, a person who's not really worth, you know, shouldn't be president on behalf of policies which are very mixed at best, um, that's, you just can't ignore that part of the story. Well, Bill, you obviously have worked, well, you worked at ABC, you, you worked at Fox News Channel. I, I'm curious, with regard to Fox News Channel, how surprised are you at what has happened to Fox with regard to their lockstep, and in the, in the words of the head of CNN, which I happen to agree with, effectively state-run media that Fox News Channel has become. How surprised are you, and, and how do you evaluate how that happened? You know, I don't, I don't watch it enough to have a really subtle view of exactly what's happening. I, I think that on Brett Baer's show and on the panel there, it's more like a real news show and more like a somewhat balanced panel. But some of the evening shows, of course, Tucker and Sean Hannity are, have become ridiculous, the five. Uh, again, I don't see them much, but I see little clips and hear about them. Um, 
I don't know. I guess they've just, you know, uh, it's a partisan, the country is very partisanly divided. A huge amount of uh, unhappiness about President Obama and frustration not to win in 2012 and frustration of the policies uh, he pursued and the things he got away with in terms of executive orders and the like. And, and just a kind of sense that this is the chance to turn around and we have to just pretend there are no problems and uh, swallow hard and, and embrace the guy. I think that's part of it. Part of it is a little... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? I was going to say uglier, maybe that's a little too strong, but a little less attractive even, which is a certain kind of relish in Trump. I mean, a certain kind of, uh, you know, we like the fact that he's almost very vulgar because it's showing those people that, you know, we can stick it to him. And, and that's that's bad. I mean, that is a kind of degeneration of conservatism and of, out of the Republican Party. And, and uh, it's unfortunate because one thing the Republican Party conservatives stood for was a certain, I think, sense of standards. And sometimes it looked a little old-fashioned with a John McCain or a Mitt Romney, but a certain sense of, uh, you know, that politics should be conducted in a decent way and, and character mattered. And uh, a lot of that's been thrown overboard. I agree with that, uh, and I also think that a lot of this is, frankly, just bottom line ratings. So yeah, don't, I mean, enough. don't you think ratings are yeah. really at the heart of it? Yeah, I mean, it is striking when you talk to people. I, again, I'm more in the magazine business, which I know a little bit more about. I mean, how much pressure that we've had. We've taken a hit by being critical of Trump. We're not uniformly as critical as Steve Hayes and I are probably, you know, quite critical. And people like Fred Barnes have a more, you know, not quite sympathetic view, but a sense of look, we can put up with the problems and. Some of it's worth the policy gains we'll get. And there's some good people in the administration. But we've taken a bit of a hit in subscriptions, probably web traffic. Uh, I think others have taken more national review. And so there's real pressure on parts of the conservative media that have tried to call it, as they see it, the journal. I don't know how much uh, Rupert Murdoch owned the Weekly Standard for 15 years, and I'm very grateful to for keeping it going as we, as we lost money. Um, but, you know, how much pressure he's put on the journal to – um, excuse Trump more than I've got to think they would. Their natural inclination would be, but I've got to say I don't know what you think about this. I mean, you you talk to a lot of people just like I do. I I, I would have said a, I don't know three four months ago that you know people kind of know better, but they're just swallowing hard and trying to put on a brave face. I'm a little spooked actually by the notion now that they're they've sort of actually believed. They believe their own, you know, propaganda. So to you speak. know, that's I mean, a great they've question. Talk themselves into it. <laughs> you know, Bill. My theory on this, because yeah. I want, this is one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because, you, you know, I, I know a lot of people in the movement, uh, not as many as you do. Uh, one of the things that, that attracted me to, to you on this particular issue, I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago, before the Trump phenomenon really became a thing, you wrote about the conservative movement becoming a racket. Yeah. And, and that was one of the things that stunned me as, um, you know, I got heavily into it. Uh, after I did a movie about the 2008 election called right. Media Malpractice and the, the whole Sarah Palin thing, and it really stunned me that this whole conservative movement really had nothing to do with conservative uh, principles or even politics. It was really all about self-engrandizement uh, and, and, you know, the totem pole and everyone trying to keep get ahead of the other guy and dog-eat-dog, dog, and it was all about, uh, you know, survival, uh, especially, you know, inside the Beltway and, and in the media world. And so the, what happened with Trump didn't shock me. In fact, you know, I, I, had, I had written a, a book proposal based upon the concept of the conservative media selling out the conservative cause back in 2011. Um, and, and so I've written early and often about what the, the, the circumstances that were going to allow Trump to do what he did. But to get more directly to your point, do they believe it or not? My theory is 
Some don't believe it at all, and they're cynically just going along with this because they know that to get on Fox News Channel to be able to sell your product, you need to be pro-Trump. There are others, like, for instance, a Sean Hannity. I think Sean Hannity looked at those ratings, and in those ratings, he convinced himself it was like a drug. A lot of this is like a drug use, I think, that, that in, in seeing those ratings like a drug, he convinced himself because it felt so good that he must be on the right track, that this must, this must be truth here or this must be on the side of good. Otherwise, it wouldn't be so popular. See, I think what's killed media today, Bill, is that because of social media, Twitter, Facebook, likes, retweets, shares, ratings, it's all about what's popular. And if people are, what they're doing in the media is popular, they think it's inherently good or right. I'm curious what you think of that. No, I think that's well said, and that's very interesting, and you were on this early. I mean, I guess I would yeah, say, or maybe say it this way, that um, if you're sort of, certainly if you, if you kind of are tentatively testing out something, you know, I'm going to walk away from conservative principles and say, that doesn't matter that much, we just got to be for Trump. And then you get a big response, positive response. I mean, it's just human nature, I suppose, you know, whether it's literally ratings or fate or, or you know, Twitter or obviously actual book sales or money, uh, you think, oh, well, you know what, I mean, a lot of people saying this, I'm not just alone, and in a democracy and in life, I mean, quantity matters, and you sort of assume that if a lot of people are rewarding you for saying something, you might be saying something right. It doesn't really work that way. I mean, there's maybe some correlation, but not right. certainly not a perfect correlation, and uh, and in this, but also this is a peculiarity of the right-wing media, the conservative media. Uh, my colleague Michael Graham makes this point at uh, at the Weekly Standard a lot about talk radio that there's also a weird cycle that happens. So you're not talking about convincing 60 million people; you're convincing you know, two or three million. You're getting ratings from two million to two and a half million. That's a huge boost, obviously. Right. But we're still a very small part of the of the country. So there's a certain reward for becoming more strident, more uh, bitter in your attacks on the left, whipping people up more. And you go from two to two and a half. I think ultimately it limits you, and ultimately it even can lead to a sort of death spiral of the kind that we've seen with some of the conservative talk radio hosts, where you just have to get more and more radical. Eventually people just say, oh, this isn't what I like listening to. I used to learn something from listening to these shows. And so even though you get a kind of a short-term, it's like drugs, you get a short-term boost, but long-term it's, it's bad for you. Right. Um, I, I think it's, it, there's a little bit of that going on, too. I don't. I'd be, maybe Fox can keep this going for four years. I'd be pretty surprised. I mean, reality is still reality, right? At some point, people are going to say, well, what is going on with our, these policy areas? And why did he make these decisions in the White House? And is this really a way to, to run the country? But, um, for, you know, you can get away for a while with a certain kind of uh, uh, whipping people up as opposed to you know, get, being sober by reality. Bill, of all the crazy things that we've seen uh, in the conser- so-called conservative media, and, and with regard to the what I call the Trump sanity phenomenon over the last year and a half, two years, which is the can you think of one or two things that shocked you the most that you never thought you would see happen and yet did? Yeah, that's a good question. I can't say there's any one thing. I mean, I would say generally the normalizing of Trump and the degree to which it happened in, you know, as he started to win primaries and it's. You know, I understand Republican elected officials are in a different place than I am, and they're going to probably support the Republican nominee and so forth. But the failure to sort of say, well, you know, let's have one last attempt to save the party, deny the nomination, this failure to stand up on issues, the, the, the willingness to say, well, he's saying these things, we'll, we'll work it out later. And I don't know. I think a lot of damage was done in that way. I mean, the public, and this is where I worry about where we're going to be three or four years from now. Mm-hmm. He'll probably be a one-term president, but how much to... 
just yielding the field uh, on so many issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the public doesn't hear these arguments, do they just assume, well, these are ridiculous arguments, American leadership in the world, free trade and stuff? Or do they, you know, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe they realize that, no, actually, these really are important things, even though neither party's making the case, because look around the world and look at reality. But I, I worry that neither party, you know, the, the left is, is irresponsible. We know an irresponsible president, and large swaths of conservative rhetoric are irresponsible. Hard to believe that's good for a democracy. One of the things that I got to ask you about, which is certainly in the realm of things that you never thought you would uh, see or hear, <laughs> I, to me, one of the most iconic moments of the uh, 2016 campaign, at least I'll never forget it, was watching you live on CNN when the Access Hollywood tape came out. And uh, your your face, uh, you know, talk about a picture, you know, a thousand words. Uh, tell me what you were thinking as you were sitting on the set there, uh, reacting to that Access Hollywood tape. I mean, I don't think I was that surprised in the sense that, you know, I thought he was not a man of good character. And so this is just another instance, kind of a more vulgar and graphic instance. And I think my mind probably, I don't really remember, honestly, but my mind must have turned pretty quickly to what are the practical implications. We've been through so many false sort of moments of finally are people going to walk away and i remember thinking maybe could this be the time mike pence and others just say this is just we cannot nominate this man for president we can't support it for president can we ask see if the republican party can see we could even change the ticket at this day late date obviously that was a long shot but uh and then i mean but i don't think i had great hopes and of course pretty quickly people took 24 hours to bring their hands about it and then they got right back in the saddle you know, last night on Saturday Night Live, uh, the Lester Holt character joked um, with Donald Trump as they were, you know, parroting the, the interview that nothing matters anymore, nothing at all. And I agree with that. I, I think we learned this week, just like we did with Access Hollywood, that when it comes to Trump, nothing really matters. I mean, we're talking about it's going to change his approval rating by maybe one or two points, either direction, depending on the wind. And that's just the way it's going to be. Is that the way you see it? You know, I don't know. That's, I think, a very good question. I think you posed the, you know, one alternative pretty starkly and pretty depressingly. I suppose the counter-argument would be, look, reality's still going to matter. He's been lucky. I mean, the economy has chugged along, uh, probably helped a little bit by some of his standard Republican deregulatory type things and uh, the sense that tax cuts might come. Uh, there's been no real big foreign policy crisis. He's had some self-imposed crises of governance, but those are complicated for people to see the implications of. And, you know, the FBI, law it's not like law enforcement in America, is going away because he fired James Comey. So I think, I mean, the good news from my point of view is he's not increased his support at all. If anything, it's probably diminished some. Right. I just looked at a poll. It's, you know, he, on, on Inauguration Day, Americans do tend to give a new president a chance. He was getting close to 50-50 in approval, disapproval, and now he's back at kind of 38-55 or some, something right. like that, pretty much where the low, near the lows. Um, you sort of think the bottom should fall out, but and maybe it won't. But on the other hand, I do think there's a kind of reality test here. People just saying, well, are things getting better? And that will be a big question two years from now. I mean, our job's going to come back to Scranton, Ohio. Is, if he really threatens trade with Mexico, is that going to work out well in terms of what kind of Mexican government we get in Mexico? I mean, some of these things will be tested by reality to the degree that responsible people in his administration you know, are able to sort of uh, uh, guide his policies so they're not too uh, irresponsible. You know, you could imagine a scenario of, of muddling through. I guess the way I'd put it is, I've been trying to think, I'm sure you have too, I mean, what, you know, what are the odds of different outcomes? And I would have said probably two, three weeks ago, 
where we're in kind of a lull, you know, we might have, I don't think we have a very good outcome of this. We might have just an acceptable kind of muddling through, you know, outcome that, 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 that you know, with McMaster and Pompeo and Mattis and some of the economic guys doing right. their things and Paul Ryan, you know, and Trump not causing too much chaos, some decent justices. Um, and I've always thought there was some chance of just the wheels coming off, pretty, you know, disastrous outcome. I now think that latter outcome chance is much higher. I, was, I just think the, the Comey thing just shows such a lack of discipline. And again, for me, I worked in the White House, it was 25 years ago, but the degree to which the staff couldn't tell him, the White House counsel must have said to him, this is a foolish thing to say in the statement that you've been assured three times right. about a investigation. They must have briefed him before the last old interview and said, look, our, you know, what you've said, Mr. President, of course, is that you thought there was general dissatisfaction with Comey as FBI director, and you saw his testimony about Hillary Clinton, and you just thought he wasn't up to the job. They must have tried to remind him that that was kind of his line, not, I fired him because I think the Russia investigation is bad, which I'm part of, you know? And then he goes out and says that. It just shows such a kind of recklessness that I think the odds of things falling apart somehow or other are are higher than I would have said a week ago. Last two questions for you, Bill, because I I know you have to uh, go take your mom to Mother's Day, which is far more important than this. (laughs) Uh, No, I get it. Um, But uh, on Twitter, you posted a a poll question Mm -hmm. about who will be the the Republican ticket in uh, 2020. And, and I'm curious as to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure you did it mostly for fun, but there must yeah. have been some some thinking behind that because I'm wondering what is the scenario in your mind where Trump isn't the nominee in 2020 for the Republican Party? So I posted this, the question, I guess Twitter lets you have four choices. So I think, and it was actually sort of, I was kind of curious. Now, obviously the people who answer your, you or follow you and see your tweets right. or on Twitter are a certain class of people, and right. people who might see other people retweeting you and stuff. I haven't studied this scientifically, but this is not a scientific survey. But I was a little struck that about only about a quarter of people thought it would be a Trump-Pence ticket again. So I think a lot of people out there, probably including some many who voted for Trump, kind of think, yeah, if I get tired of it, he won't run again, or conceivably he'll be forced to step down. Uh, and then another quarter thought, you know, Pence, I made it up, obviously Pence, Dickie Haley or something, right. would be the ticket. And, you know, that strikes me as people who are pretty happy with the Trump-Pence administration, but are happy enough to have Pence as the kind of standard bearer for the second four years. Um, and then uh, I guess I had um, uh, Ben Sass and uh, Mike Gallagher, the young congressman from Wisconsin, as an alternative, and um, what was it, okay, six, since he you know, obviously didn't want to run right. again. In case he had like 30 and Sass had 20. It struck me as the numbers, surprising number of people seem to think it's a non-crazy notion that Trump won't run again uh, for whatever reason. And some people think even someone who wasn't part of Trump or is anti-Trump could be the Republican nominee. I don't know how true that is. I just thought it would be interesting to ask. So, I, so, I, so your scenario would be that Trump just doesn't want to run well, again? So he could be impeached. He could be forced out of office. He could be like an LBJ. So the situation is already used the historical shorthand. Nixon, forced to resign. Johnson, so much opposition to within the party that he chooses not to run again, and even though he sort of thinks about it or plans to, um, or uh, voluntarily just choosing that he doesn't want to do it again. So those are, I think, are the three ways it could happen. See, I'm going to lie to you. I'd uh, (laughs) add a question here then. So let's pretend Democrats take the House, which I think is very plausible, uh, and they're going to be forced to impeach him uh, because their base will insist on it. Now, assuming Republicans still hold the Senate, which statistically would make sense, he'll he'll remain in office. So, so uh, take me through that scenario then, as far as where, where I mean, assuming that that's more than likely, I think. How does an impeached Donald Trump 
do in a re-election campaign? I mean, I don't know. We really haven't tested that proposition, and a lot would depend on what the actual charges were. Did it seem just political, and did he rally the country to him, like Clinton has helped, I suppose, and by being impeached, so he wasn't up, up again, obviously. Uh, I, I really don't know. I don't think it's – I mean, just so much depends on what the real facts are. You know, I'm not so sure. I guess the one thing I have a question mark in my mind about is, does the, the Republican deference to Trump, the willingness to support Trump, to excuse some of these things, does that stay forever? I mean, I just wonder if that privately it's clearly eroded if you talk to these guys, whether publicly they're just going to be stuck there for the next two, three years. I find that kind of hard to believe, but, but maybe they will be. All right, last question, Bill. So I, I'm not known for my optimism, so I'm going to I'm going to ask for you to give us an optimistic yeah. note here. Uh, give us the optimistic path for what's left of conservatism going forward. Trump is kind of a blowout where we see that the populist, nationalist, you know, uh, protectionist, isolationist alternative is not viable, doesn't work politically or in the real world. And that after this, getting people kind of get this out of their system, and there's a kind of reinvigorated conservatism. Obviously, can't go back to pre-Trump, and it shouldn't, and it won't be just Romney or McCain. It has to be fresh and new. There are a lot of bright young Republican congressmen and senators uh, who could, you know, emerge after Trump. So the scenario would have to be that Trump's discredited, uh, the party kind of uh, rebels against Trump ultimately, and puts that behind. Him and, you know, it was after Nixon was Reagan, if you want to think of it that way, right? It's not impossible to have a party kind of rejuvenated after a, after a you know, a fairly disastrous presidency. Bill, uh, thanks so much for your time and for standing up for conservative principles. Well, we no, really- well thank, thank you for what you've done, too, and it's, it was great talking to you. All right, thanks, Bill. Take care. Thanks. That's uh, Bill Crystal, uh, the Weekly Standard uh, editor-at-large, as well as a CNN uh, commentator with some uh, very interesting things. Uh, Wish we had a little bit more time to talk to him, but obviously a Mother's Day calls, so uh, we'll, we'll accept the uh, 27 minutes or so that he was able to give us and with much appreciation. Let me just address that last point about uh, the optimistic scenario, although I guess I'm going to be contradicting myself because you know I, I wanted to end this on an optimistic note. I, I get that, um, that there is a scenario where we, where we can survive this, uh, but to me it's an incredibly narrow path. Because part of what's driving all of this is the simultaneous massive demographic shift in this country. See, to me, I think the fundamental problem that the base had in evaluating the danger of Trump, and, 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 and by the way, this is not universal, because there are some people who saw this demographic shift and decided, you know what, Trump's our last hope, so we might as well take a Hail Mary pass, and if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. We were screwed anyway. And, and by the way, I think that that was somewhat logical. I didn't agree with it, but that at least made some sense. If you believe, like, for instance, my old co-host Leah Brandon, I think, was in this camp, although she caught the Trump virus and, you know, there's no cure for it, as far as I can tell. So then she kind of became a cult member. But there was, there's at least some logic that if you think we're screwed, it's over then even if you don't think that Trump is likely to succeed, at least, you know, he gave us the Hail Mary shot. I would submit that under that scenario, we now know the Hail Mary is not going to work, okay? He's not going to make America great again. This is not going to be a rousing success. Barring some black swan event that no one can anticipate, which is certainly theoretically possible, on the current path we're on, this is not going to be a rousing success. He's not going to save the country. He's not even going to build a damn wall. I mean, almost anything that he 
promised isn't going to happen. So take that scenario off, off the table. Now, back to where the base miscalculated. See, I'm even as pessimistic as I am, I don't think we're at the Hail Mary stage. We're close. We're not there yet. But I think we lost our last legitimate chance to turn this thing around. Because what I think is going to happen is the backlash against Trump will be tremendous. And it'll be in the short run and in the long run. Because you have to remember, and I and if I had more time with Bill, this is exactly where I would have gone with this. And Bill kind of alluded to it. Once Trump is done, think about this, folks. There will be effectively an entire generation of Americans who are already brainwashed with liberalism by our academic institutions who will think of conservatism as nothing but Trumpism. And that's not just from the standpoint of his politics, the whole populism, nationalistic thing, which would be bad enough. I'm not talking about the details because no one gives a fuck about the details anymore, all right? We're talking about broad strokes. In broad strokes, they're going to think of the Republican Party and conservatism as this asshole Donald Trump who failed, who promised everything and delivered nothing. So this was a generation we were already in deep trouble with, with regard to conservatism, for two basic reasons. Young people are usually liberal, and two, our academic institutions have never been more liberal. So they've been brainwashed, and they live in a world of political correctness and you know, participation trophies for everybody. They're a bunch of wussies. Special snowflakes. So now we get in a situation where more and more of our people are dying. More and more of their people are becoming eligible to vote. And this doesn't even take into consideration the possibility that Trump ends up, ironically enough, giving us a massive amnesty, which I think is theoretically possible, would never have happened under Hillary because Republicans would have fought her tooth and nail on that, but it can happen under Trump because they can't fight him on that because he's got ultimate moral authority with the base on the issue of immigration. So he's far more dangerous on that. But if this goes as it is currently headed, we lose the House, maybe the Senate, we lose the presidency, we've given up the filibuster on judicial nominations, we are going to get screwed beyond comprehension in the next administration. And by the way, I've already stated one of those scenarios where we could get screwed is where Trump is still president. Trump does the screwing with a Democratic House and a Democratic Senate. Boy, wouldn't that be rich? But that is, there's a real good possibility of that. But then, then under that scenario, I don't know how we turn it around. Bill referenced, well, we came out of Nixon, we got Reagan. Yeah. But that was a country where California could still vote Republican. Therefore, when you had California, you have all sorts of electoral college scenarios. You have incredible leeway. Once you lose California, and oh, by the way, Reagan also won New York. So once you've lost California and New York forever, you're close to losing Texas demographically, 
this fluke that happened in 2016. And let's never, ever, ever forget how much of a fluke 2016 was. It was a fluke. Donald Trump lost the popular vote by 3 million votes. No one has ever come close to winning the Electoral College, losing the popular vote by 3 million. And he won the the Electoral College by less than 100,000 votes in three states, two of which Hillary didn't even bother to frickin' campaign in because of a fluke, because of a series of circumstances that will never be duplicated. And so, to me, where we're headed, especially once we get single-payer socialized medicine, there's no way to come back from that because now we have institutionalized socialism forever. Now, you could argue, well, wait a minute, John, FDR and LBJ did similar things. But I would argue that very little of what they did ever got dismantled. We just were able to survive it because, one, our system is so strong, the country is so strong, and, two, the demographics were different. But as the demographics change and we get, as Mitt Romney famously said, 47% of the people living off the federal dole and that number continues to increase, you get beyond the tipping point and there's no coming back. Not to mention all the credibility that our side will have lost in the short run. Like You can get credibility back eventually, but in the short run, why would anybody believe anything we say after Trump? Why? There is nothing. I, I cannot think of anything for which we can criticize the other side now. Not the issue of honesty, not the issue of ethics, not the issue of principle, nepotism, you know, the whole draining the swamp business fulfilling promises, being consistent ideologically, firing FBI directors who are investigating you. There's nothing. I mean, forget about infidelity. That was take, I mean, grabbing pussy now. We can't even, we can't even criticize someone who publicly says they grab pussy of strangers because they're celebrities. I mean, this is going to have, this is why I keep saying long-term implications. This is we're this we're gonna be paying for this party for an incredibly long period of time. And by the time we've paid off the party, I fear that the circumstances of the country will have been so fundamentally altered, there's no way to come back. So so much for ending this week's podcast on an optimistic note. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm a truth guy. That's just the way I see it. And no one else is going to tell you that because guess what? Pessimism doesn't sell. So that's why you're only going to hear it on a podcast from a relative nobody. But that's the damn truth. And that's what this podcast is about. So as always, I ask only two things of you. Make sure that you share this podcast via social media, Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And two, do yourself a favor And uh, if you're one of those people who sleeps, when you sleep at night, you use, or during the day, you use sheets. Pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. 
These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.